We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. Just one more thing. Hey now. Oh boy. Holy mechanical armies. Mom always liked you best. Oh, she did. <laughs> you wanted to be one word. What is the other word? One of these days. Are we having fun yet? It's gonna be legend. Wait for it. Now, you might very well think that, but of course I couldn't possibly comment. Bertie Helens agreed. Oh, come on! Missed it by that much. Good evening. Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sundance Aids TV podcast. This is Kate Kalzik and I'm joined as ever by Mr. Simon Howell. Howdy. How's it going this week, Simon? I am choked like a man in a sewer by homework. But uh, it's it's almost it's almost over. It's almost uh, holiday break. So maybe next week I'll be cheerier. We'll see. <laughs> well, fingers crossed that uh, that you struggle through and prevail, sir. Um, on, we had some nice comments on the website this week uh, that I'll go right into. Uh, Dan, it was lovely to hear from Dan because he actually agrees with me about the the ending of Freaks and Geeks, which is of course the show we discussed last week on our DVD shelf. Um, and I didn't think anybody did, so it was nice to see that there's one. Um, uh, and then he also left a comment about the amazing race and that he's rooting for Armani and Marcus. So that will, I'm sure we will discuss that more when we talk about this week's episode of the amazing race. And then Mario posted some thoughts on Dexter, which I appreciated because I know this has been a mixed season of Dexter for a lot of fans. There's some frustration. I'm, I'm trying to avoid spoilers here, but a certain twist, I guess, or something was played as a twist that was incredibly obvious from the first episode on. And so I'm, I'm hearing I'm hearing not so great things about Dexter, but it did just get picked up for two more seasons. So, so that's a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> Question mark? The, I mean, they're, they're, it seems like Showtime's really playing footsie with the idea of two more seasons, but these are the final seasons, but they don't, they're hedging their bets on that, though. They want to be able to keep renewing it, I guess, past nine seasons. Yeah, uh, this is the, the peril of having your show be too popular. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so thanks, uh, Dan and Mario. Uh, it was nice to hear from you. We also did not get any iTunes rating this week, uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, it was nice to hear from them. Also, I should mention, I was talking with, with Corey on, on Twitter, uh, cause of course he was our guest when we talked about Freaks and Geeks and he had a hit the head moment when he realized that we did not mention the Come Sail Away dance sequence from the pilot, which is his favorite moment in the entire series. So I told him that I would mention it this week and give it some love because it really is a great moment in a really fun episode. So Now, what's our what's our shelf this week? What are we going with? We're going with Xena with Karen from right. Starbase 66, which was a lot of fun to, to talk about. So that'll be a little later in the show. Um, and before I forget, we also have uh, some fun stuff happening at Sound on Sight with our 25 Days of Christmas. So Ricky and I have swapped roles somewhat. He's doing TV episodes and specials. I'm doing movies. And we're putting up a, a different review every day leading up to Christmas. So that's been fun. It's been uh, a different experience for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what, uh, what else you've got around the corner. 
Yeah, there's been a couple that I've I've enjoyed watching, but I've gotten to the end and realized this isn't a Christmas movie. I was led astray. So if anybody has some um, suggestions of Christmas movies that I might not have already seen, they should let me know because I need. I, I thought Penny Serenade would work, but it's not going to. And I thought Better Off Dead was going to work, but it's not going to. So I need a couple more picks. So if anybody has any suggestions for me. Would you accept Hanukkah or Kwanzaa movies? Yeah, I think that works. I mean, it's it's a, a 20 Days of Christmas list, but the thing is there really aren't many good ones. Uh, I can pretty much just think of Eight Crazy Nights for Hanukkah, uh, and I just go immediately to Kwanzaabot from Futurama whenever I think of Kwanzaa-related uh, media. So There must be something. If there is, let us know. Send us a tweet. Leave a comment. It would be great to round out my picks with, with something that isn't just Christmas. So, um, But let's move into our, our week in TV. Uh, so this week, we started with, on um, Tuesday, now, the part one of the Sons of Anarchy uh, finale aired, but you're going to hold off on that? Yeah. Um, this week was act... Uh, sorry, let me let me get this right. Act one... To be, part one. Now, thankfully, part two is not called not to be. It's just <laughs> part two. But I, I figure I'm going to wait till next week and just sort of sum up my feelings on the whole finale and the whole season because it's really been a bit of a it's it's been a, a mixed bag. It's been an entertaining mixed bag, but I'm I'm very curious to see how they wrap it up and how ballsy they're going to be and and how they do so. So stay tuned for that one. Uh, this week I actually did watch New Girl, a show that I don't usually watch, but it's so popular that I feel like I need to check in on it from time to time. And I found myself laughing roughly as much as I did with the pilot for I Hate My Teenage Daughter, which we'll get to in a minute. Oh, burn! Which is to say I didn't... I don't get the appeal of New Girl. I'm just going to go there and say that. I don't get it. Oh, fair enough. I thought this was... I enjoyed this episode. It was nice to see Winston actually get something to do this is the episode where uh, Jess has a group of, I guess, troubled teens that she works with in a bell choir, uh, because that's how you keep troubled teens off the street. You put them in bell choir. Um, and they seemed really troubled, by the oh, way. Oh, so very troubled. One of them was sassy. And yeah. you can guess uh, her gender and ethnicity based on that comment. Um, but the... Uh, I like that we did get some some development about Winston, and I liked the the subplot with Schmidt and Nick arguing over money, and um, I thought there was some truth to that, and uh, it gave us some information about both characters, and I liked that they were both kind of wrong. So, uh, anytime you have friends escalating in a in a TV show, I'm probably going to enjoy it. So maybe that's why it you know I enjoyed it while you didn't, but uh, I thought it was okay. Yeah, I don't know. This was the first week that I noticed that Zoe Deschanel is also a producer on the show. And whenever, like, I feel like every three or four minutes she gets, like, a little private showcase. And it's never, it, with the possible exception of her, like, terrible Bells performance, none of it was funny. <laughs> I, I, I just, to me, she is, she's not, like, Whitney anti-funny, but she's not that far off. Hmm. Interesting. For me, the biggest, my biggest problem with the episode was just that when they were having Winston do these amazing bell things, he's holding four bells and we're hearing more than four notes. And so that was rather distracting to me, but 
otherwise I was okay with it. I don't know. I don't think it compares even a little bit with I Hate My Teenage Daughter. And let's talk about that briefly. The The pilot aired this past Wednesday. Damn. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, you know what the, the operative word for this show is? It's bleak. As I was watching it, I just, you know, my eyes were glazing over and I just, I just thought of post-apocalyptic vistas and <laughs> rivers of blood. It's just, this is the, like, it's not only anti-funny, it's also tragic in ways that it doesn't intend to be just because, you know, it's got this cast and you've seen them all in better things and you're just wondering what the hell is happening. I need to, I, I want to point out especially um, Chad Coleman who was, of course, great on The Wire, and now he's here. Um, God, I just, I, I just, the best thing for everyone here is Swift cancellation. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I, I thought that I had seen the worst of the fall pilots. I was wrong. And I think this is also, well, we had argued per, uh, perhaps it was um, How to Be a Gentleman had the most wasted cast. I feel like this perhaps is even more of a wasted cast because I have seen all of these people be good in other things, like you said, and this is terrible. The writing is just, I mean, I don't know. There's nothing that they can do with this writing and having that obnoxious laugh track in there doesn't help, but oh my goodness, do not watch this show. Just yeah, don't, no. don't do it. <clears throat> and the thing is the people in the show don't want you to watch it either. They're not going to admit it in public, but Trust me, they all want off. Um, I also need to point out uh, Wendy McLendon-Covey, who is great in Bridesmaids and Reno 911, also in there. And, you know, I, I don't I don't have anything against Jamie Presley. Katie Finneran is in there. I mean, come on, guys. Get better agents or something. I don't know. There must be something you can do. But, it, but, but, the, but there is something we can do, and that's not watch. So let's move on. Yeah. Uh, this week, Top Chef... Uh, were you at all thrown by the ob obnoxious opening device of having them all get in their Sierras or whatever they were called <laughs> and then and then be diverted to this roadblock on this obscure on this obscure road? And did, did that distract you at all? Let's just start there. No, I was I was fine with it. I, I, I guess I'm just um, inured to that. I, I'm used to it on, on Top Chef and these other reality shows. So. It didn't strike me as particularly false for these things, um, and I thought it was fine. I I do think uh, it's it's entertaining though. How much it bothered you? I don't know. It's just I, I feel like that when they contrive to do things like that, it's usually not quite so blatant. But maybe that's that's just me. Uh, I thought this was uh, you know a, a fine episode of Top Chef. I am struggling to remember details right now. <laughs> the main thing that I took away from it, besides the fact that I really don't like Beverly, at least how she's portrayed by the oh, editing. yes, she's horrible. Um, is that, dear Lord, I would not want this job based on uh, the catering to the wealthy clients. This right, was, of the course, the progressive clientele. dinner party in, in Dallas with uh, three sets of couples. And, oh, man, I just dealing with the... I, I enjoyed the fact that the the person who won the challenge was the guy who had done this sort of thing before and he was doing his talking heads going, when when the wife and the husband disagree, just go with whatever the wife says because then the husband will be happy. And, and like, they're dealing with one one household. The, the, the guy loves meat and the wife is a vegetarian. And the other wives, uh, they don't like cilantro or anything spicy. And Actually, wasn't there two households that didn't like cilantro? Yes. 
to yeah. the other the the appetizer and the entree. At least the dessert house, they they embrace it. They're like, no, have fun with it, you know. But just man, I wouldn't want to have to deal with these people. Well, it was more like here's a long list of things that you can't do, but have fun. <laughs> um, yeah, they were all just terrible human beings. Um, mind you. I really think that the cigar guy should have been gone because that thing was revolting. Yeah, one of the the people, and you know, he's a Chicago guy, so I kind of want to root for him. But he made this, uh, this his appetizer was this thing that was wrapped up in what was it, cabbage leaves or something, and made to look like a a, a cigar that you're supposed to. With eat, ash and everything. With yeah. ash and everything, but it was, like, I mean, even just looking at it on camera, it was greasy, and, the, I mean, these women are all dressed to the nines. They specifically mentioned they wanted things that were easy to eat so they wouldn't mess up their makeup. I mean, granted, I think that's a silly thing to care about when you're having a fine dining experience, uh, but that's what they cared about, and he clearly wasn't listening to them. Yeah, I mean, even I had to sort of, I think, you know, the, the host's one on-the-money moment was just looking at that thing and being like, I don't eat cigars. <laughs> like, sorry. <laughs> it it just seemed like in execution and concept, it was a really dumb idea. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but I thought it was a, you know, it was it was a clear sign that the guy, that this guy was going home this week when we got the clip about his dad. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, you're gone. Yeah, as soon as you start hearing backstory, or as soon as the violins kick in, you know that 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 person's not long for the for the show. But I mean, I still think it was an enjoyable episode. It was something new; they haven't done this before, so we'll see if it returns in in upcoming seasons or if they abandon the concept. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to Thursday. Uh, the Wednesday comedies took the week off, but we had plenty of excellent comedy elsewhere. So what did you think of this week's episode of Community? I know you've been on the fence. Yeah, well, here's my thing. I know everyone is freaking out about the anime segment and, you know, some of the other backstory stuff. To me, the reason this was an above-average episode of Community was anytime you have Nick Kroll doing a funny voice, I'm in the can. It's a very simple thing, but it's just he happens to be very good at it. And uh, he, um, as someone someone else mentioned, he's sort of filling the Big Lebowski role. And I, yeah, I, I can see that. But um, I think for, that's the reason I was semi in the can this week. But I gather you uh, you loved this episode probably. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I really liked it. Um, I did love the anime sequence, like you said. Uh, I just thought it was so, such, I think the best sequence like that I've seen. I know on Futurama... Uh, last last season they did an anime segment and some other series have done that too and I, I felt like this was the best use of that idea. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it was great to see Shirley get some development, any development really, and nice yeah. to, to see a different pairing. We don't usually see her with Jeff as they commented on in the episode, so that was nice. And I also enjoyed the, 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 the stuff we got with uh, Abed and Troy and Annie. I mean Abed dressed up as Batman worked a lot better than I would have anticipated, especially him grappling hook grappling hooking his way down was was pretty funny. And I also I just love the the notion that that Troy had about how Annie was supposed to temper his and Abed's crazy, but she's only exacerbating things. I thought that was a fun uh a fun way to go with with their roommate situation and uh no, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I I still think though that the show's sort of tendency to push their joke a little too far to the realm of the not funny is is still happening like the way like the first time annie does her christian bale voice funny 
and she brings it back just a bit and it's like no just should have left it there um and i also am not all that crazy about every time they do a hackneyed sitcom plot they have to point out that they're doing a hackneyed sitcom plot we know you're doing a hackneyed sitcom plot you don't need to tell us but anyway personal beefs i thought it was a fine episode uh speaking of fine episodes on nbc this week parks and rec went back to the duh this week uh with the trial of leslie nope uh, i thought this was a pretty nice little episode i mean i i, I thought it was you know it, it's a little contrived that they sort of fix their problem this week once and for all but luckily someone ha- had to actually pay a price uh for the uh for the illicit relationship and i like that they they've always maintained from the time that um that as his Ansari's character had to get had to sell his shares of the club, they've always been consistent about Rob Lowe's character being a stickler for the rules and 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 being you know very uh, very dogged about that. And I like that they've maintained that aspect of his character while keeping him thoroughly wacky and hilarious. Uh, so I think I think it was above average for the season. Yeah, I really liked this episode. I thought it was well handled. Of course, this is Leslie. Get, get, there's a hearing about her actions in relation to her her relationship with uh with ben and that's what what drove the episode and i i mean it it just things yes it it did go for the aw tug at the heartstrings but also it was just funny with everything with chris was a lot of fun his vitamin popping and and the the testimony from april and andy i particularly april i thought was hilarious so Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, it just, it, it was really, it was really solid, even to just the small moment of how um, Anne's job in, when they all have jobs, uh, her job is to text April every 40 seconds to tell her that it's all going to be okay. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought it worked really well, and I, I, I had forgotten about the guy that they bribed, and so when he came back in, it, or, or even just the, the, the quick use of Tammy too, I thought was was a nice little touch and I'm glad they didn't tease that in the the promo. So I thought it was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was watching season three on DVD the other day and I was a little bit depressed by how much more I was enjoying it than the current season, which has been fine. But then, but, but then watching it in context of the other TV, I came to realize, you know, it's still, it's still definitely NBC's best comedy and, and one of the best comedies on the air. Yeah. Speaking of best comedies on the air, at least for me, what did you think of Thunder Gun Express from Always Sunny this week? You know, whenever, I'm sure I've said this before, whenever they go super high concept, I mean, this was essentially a real-time episode, although it wasn't really, uh, not if you were paying attention. Uh, It's a mixed bag, and this, to me, was not the best work of the season. I mean, to, to me, the highlight had to be D struggling in the sewer. Which just, which was just a, a funny image. I know they, they they like to throw her into situations like that, and it's an easy laugh, but it's it's a good one. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I I I I would be I would be happy to return to a hangout situation for the last couple episodes of the season. Well, the last two episodes of the season are a two-parter, which is about their high school reunion. So it's high school reunion, and then high school reunion part two, the revenge. That, so, that sounds like a can't miss proposition to me. Yeah, we'll I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to that as well. I, I do agree that this is not their most successful episode of the season. There have been a couple, I think, in the the back half of the season that haven't been quite as as solid as the first half. But I still think it was a lot of fun. And I anytime we get 
just more proof of how terrible they all are, especially to each other. I, I think that's funny. Anytime somebody talks about how Seinfeld is a show about terrible people, it, I always like, mm, they don't really seem that terrible. Always Sunny is a show about terrible people. Yeah. I also like Dennis and his tapes of, of <laughs> oh, his of his time with women. That was pretty great. But oh. but I, I I think Dennis is my favorite in, in terms of people, uh, in terms of these characters and their awfulness. I, I most like finding out about Dennis's awfulness because it's the most profound. Well, and even just the fact that they all, they spend the episode backstabbing each other and then end the episode sitting next to each other happily in a row uh, at the movie theater. I thought that, I mean, it's, I think that's perfect. It shows the characters perfectly. They don't, they do all these terrible things and yet they're still great friends. And I think that's just dysfunctional, a dysfunctional family if ever there were. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on, we uh, we skipped Beavis and Butthead this week because we were we we, we had B and B fatigue, but uh, we both did watch Prime Suspect, which we guess is canceled. Yeah, there's um, another. I think the final new episode is going to be in two weeks. Next week, Grimm is taking that spot, but we'll we'll see. I mean, it's I, it's practically canceled in my head. I can tell myself it's not, but. And when you see episodes like this week's episode, it just makes it all the more depressing, I think, because I thought it was another solid episode with some really great character development, and it even had Emma Caulfield pop up, from uh, who we all love from Buffy. So yeah. in, in a fairly thankless supporting role. Yeah, but I did think that she brought more to it than I've seen in that role on other shows. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think, yeah, the, the only problem with this episode really is it relies on a on a depiction of, you know, the porn world that is fairly familiar, I think, in the cop milieu where it's, you know, sad and depressing and, 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 uh, and, you know, filled with dead end women. Um, but I think for, you know, this sort of portrayal that we're familiar with, I think it was really well done and effectively grimy and depressing and, and, and disturbing. And I, I, I really liked that at first I didn't know how to feel, but I did like that, that, prickly moment near the end when um when uh, maria bello advises this woman to basically play play insane and lawyer up which was maybe not the right thing to do but they know that and i thought it was sort of their their it was really the first time we've seen her do something that's maybe not advisable which is an interesting development yeah and that's also something that so many shows have done as well as I just keep thinking with this episode, I just keep comparing it to other episodes of, for example, Law & Order SVU that I've seen and how, how they've handled it and as compared to how it was handled here. And I think it's just a better show, a better handling of the same material than you're seeing on any of these other procedurals right now, at least the cop procedurals. And uh, I, I don't know, I think it's because of the character, of how how we relate so so much to Jane and the fact that she doesn't seem to care about these people like she doesn't care when the the stripper comes up and tells her that she changed her life and she probably saved it by by convincing her to get off the street granted now she's stripping and doing porn but she's at least not a prostitute anymore hmm. but but Jane doesn't care about that and so to to have her care enough about this random person I thought was interesting yeah, I also noticed this week, and I mean, the show's got a great cast, and Maria Bello's great, but the more I watch, the more I feel like I gravitate towards Brian F. O'Byrne, 
who uh, plays her her coworker, who gets a, a nice little subplot, a nice sad little subplot this week, and I I just think he's so great on this show. And I feel like I had something else I wanted to mention, and now I don't remember what it was. So let's move Perhaps on. Perhaps it was Aiden Quinn and his b- nice supporting work as well. I, I loved him on Book of Daniel, and so ever since then, watching him pop up in these other shows, this this guy needs to get more consistent TV work, because I think he's great as a recurring character. But Well, I, I, I'm, I'm in general, it's sort of the opposite of I Hate My Teenage Daughter. Like, I'll be sad to see this cast get disbanded, because... Yeah. If 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 they do, uh, because because uh, <laughs> oh. they're they're not only great individually, but they're they're great together. Especially, yeah. I mean, Kirk Acevedo and all these people. It's just it's ridiculous to 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 assemble this great dramatic cast and not let them go on for like fifty episodes at least. Speaking uh, of dis- dismantling uh, excellent supporting cast, Supernatural this week on. Um, on Friday, of course, I have my review up on the website, so if you want to see my fuller thoughts, you can see it there. But mostly, it's pretty much a rave for this episode, which wasn't the best episode ever, but definitely the best episode they've had in a while. And I think that goes pretty strongly to the fact it's centered on Jim Beaver's character, Bobby. And I will avoid spoilers completely, because I know you haven't seen it. And well, I know, what, I know what happens. You can, oh, you can okay. talk about it. Pretty much Bobby's dead. Um, but he might not be, but if he isn't at this point, given the, you know, they give him the perfect final words to say, they give, you know, I, I, it actually feels if, if it's actually supposed to be a cliffhanger, um, then I'm a bit disappointed in them. To me, it, it feels like it's something you could read as a cliffhanger, but it's not actually because he wouldn't make the choice to become an angry, vengeful ghost rather than to let go and trust um, trust the boys. So, I mean, anytime you give somebody like a Jim Beaver a starring vehicle the chance to get to play comedy and drama and everything in between and the sort of rich character history that this that this character has, it's going to serve you well. And it did here. So we got to see Rufus back, which was nice. Um, we got some, some nice fun from the guys arguing. Uh, I don't know if you have a thought on this. Chuck Norris versus Jet Li. Who's going to win? Oh, Jet Li. Ooh, interesting. Clearly. Interesting. So that would put you with uh, with Sam. But uh, it was a fun episode. I have episode. no idea what that means. That's okay. It's a fun episode, and hopefully when it returns in the spring, I, while I don't agree that this is the right move for the series, I feel like they still really need somebody like a Jim Beaver in a supporting role. We'll We'll see what happens, and hopefully this episode pays off well. Yes. Now, on Sunday, we had The Amazing Race and a, a rather, to me at least, surprising uh, turn of events. What did you think? Yeah, the shocking elimination of the snowboarders, who I gather have been kicking ass all season. I've only been watching for a few episodes. But uh, I, I, I have one thing I had to get out of the way before we continue discussing, which is I hated I hated the first 10, epi- 10 minutes or so of this episode, which had them running around trying to figure out who Tintin characters are, which was such a transparent attempt to get audiences familiar with who the hell these characters are so that they'll be primed for the Tintin movie in, like, three weeks. Come on. Like, that was incredibly transparent. Was but, it more but... transparent than them building their Mustangs? I mean, come oh, on. Oh, well... Yeah, but that was at least, like, that took maybe ten seconds of the episode. This was, like, a quarter of the episode. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that, and, and it had very little bearing on the outcome of the of the, of the the race, as you may or may not have noticed. But anyway, um, yeah, other than that, I thought it was, it was solid. It was shocking to see them go, but, I mean, there's only so many teams left, so somebody's got to 
got to bite the dust. Yeah, the thing that was surprising to me is that they've just been so much more competent than in the other teams. Uh, really, for the entire season, it's been the snowboarders, the grandparents, and the Chicagoans who have been by far the most consistent top three teams. And it's hard to feel too bad for them because they are going home with shiny new cars and lots of vacations from having won so many different legs of the of the race. But still, the fact that it, it just kind of sucks watching it because they, the other teams, with the exception of Jeremy and Sandy, who I will say surprised me, I didn't think they would figure it out. But they're the only team who actually figured out the final challenge. The other teams just their cabbies called each other and told them the answer. And so well, that's how the race goes. But it was still a bit disappointing to, to me because, you know, it's always frustrating when you see the other characters make the, or the other teams make the same mistakes and then just get saved by, by chance. And you always hope that your team is the team that's going to get saved by chance. So we'll see. So who is your pick now? Who do you think is going to win in this final three? Uh, well, you've watched the entire season, so I, you know what, I, I don't want to bet on these things, because you, as you've just pointed out, I mean, so much of this is based on randomness and luck and, and chance, so I, I think to, to bet on this is a, is a fool's errand, but, uh, I mean, any, any sane person would have bet on the snowboarders, and they'd be out of, you know, whatever ludicrous amount they pitched in the first place, so I'm not playing this game. <laughs> I know that I know that my mom's pool is uh, my parents' pool that is has been completely messed up. Their pool of no dollars with their friends. Everybody except for one person picked the snowboarders, and so trying to pick between these final three teams, I think, is difficult. While Dan, as you know, left a comment saying he's rooting for Imani and Marcus. The best, the most consistent team has been the Chicagoans, but then again, Cindy is also apt to freak out, and 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 so I think it really could go any way at this point and that's it's been a while since i felt that that way about the final the final leg of a race so we'll see what uh, happens money and marcus are very likable despite marcus's constant sports metaphors which do <laughs> which do great although yeah. maybe not as much on you <laughs> yeah it's it's just it's well and you feel like i imagine under because this is a stressful situation people revert to what they're used to and what they can relate to and so you know I can sort of understand that, so it doesn't bother me as much. But it is, it's become sort of, I feel like there's a drinking game in it for those who are so inclined. Every time, you know, do a shot or something, every time he mentions a football reference. Yes, and yeah. you won't you won't make it far. You won't make uh, it far. Speaking of things that I didn't make it far into, once upon a time. Yes, uh, this, this episode was called The Shepherd, and it focused on the backstory of Prince Charming, or James, as he is actually known. Um, and Ricky has a review of this up on the website, and I will mostly agree with his review. One of the things he points out in it is that uh, Snow White and Prince Charming, Jennifer Goodwin and Josh Dallas are doing a really good job of playing star-crossed love, and that's not an easy thing to do. Many, many series base their shows upon it and fail because of that, because they don't have the right kind of, of chemistry for their doomed loves. But that's one of the things I think they're absolutely doing right. Both actors have done a good job in the past and the present, um, or the fairy tale land and, and the the modern world, playing that element to their characters. So we'll see what goes, what what you know, what comes of it. I, the backstory we got this week was a bit cliche, but still fun. And the dragon we got to see was pretty sweet, at least a little bit of 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 it that we did. I think it was wise to limit our exposure to the CGI dragon because then they could put the money they had into a few 
excellent shots of it rather than a longer sequence that would look more mediocre. Um, as far as the the rest of the episode, we'll see. It's interesting to see um, Rumpelstiltskin or his um, modern day counterpart, Mister Gold. It's it's fun to try to puzzle out how much of the history he's aware of. But uh, he, Robert Carlyle, of course, remains one of the absolute strengths of the series. So we'll see what happens with it. Uh, it's it's become a far more engaging show than I anticipated, and it's I still wouldn't say it's a great show, but I think it's fun for those who enjoy this kind of storytelling. We had another really great episode of The Good Wife this week. What did you think? <clears throat> it was really nice to have it back this week. Um, and... I think on paper it was like a perfect episode of The Good Wife because you have Michael J. Fox back and you've got um, Jennifer Carpenter shows up for some reason and like a, what amounts to a glorified cameo. Very strange. Uh, and, but, you know, you're you're just reminded of, of the show's ridiculous sort of peripheral cast of possible guests, which is just has to be like 50 people long at this point. Uh, I did think it was a strong episode, but I it wasn't necessarily as subtle as I like the show to be. I think it hammered the the point of, you know, can Juliana Margulies take care of her kids and still be a great lawyer? And I I, I think it sort of, you know, in the circumstances of the episode, I, th I think it, it hit that point a little bit too hard with Michael J. Fox's character being on her about it and the daughter going missing and all this other stuff. But other than that, I thought it was fine. Well, and I, as far as that element goes, I like that that is a possible thing that we could see in the future. I like that Michael J. Fox, I mean, the character Canning is, is great and has been a, a excellent foil for Olivia and the, uh, has been an excellent foil for Alicia in the courtroom um, several times now. So it's nice to see him come back and still respect her and want her to come work for his firm. And the, his pitch is perfect. And I think he does sincerely mean it as well and for me the it, it wasn't too much because the daughter was fine and it was all a big uh, hyped up um just uh, just a couple hours and it wasn't a big deal and everything turned out okay if it had been something more extreme i would agree with you that it was overplayed but because it was just she butt dialed her mom a bunch of times uh then i think it was it was okay for me speaking of the periphery characters it was nice to see uh, just a touch of Eli this week, which I think it has been missing. I feel like a lot of his episodes, we've either gotten a major arc from him or like the A plot or maybe B plot, but we had, or nothing. And so it was nice to see just him used as another member of the supporting cast, as opposed to having to have an entire episode of Eli or nothing. So I thought that was nice. But for me, the main, the main things I liked about this episode were having another, uh, Another exchange with Martha and Caitlin, I thought that was fun, and I like that she's now at Canning's firm, so she can recur. I think that would be a, a fun element to to add into the the recurring, I guess the the wheel of of recurring lawyers. And then also, I think the the ending was very well played by my Margulies and Charles, and and I continue to enjoy the development of Alicia's character. Yeah, the, the actress who plays Martha is really great. I need to see her in, in more things. I don't, I don't remember seeing her before. Uh, there were a couple things about the ending I wasn't crazy about. I didn't really like Canning becoming a rascal again at the end of the episode, which I know he is the entire time. But I think it weakened the possibility of her coming to his firm, which I liked having as a firm option for her and a good one. 
uh, especially in the wake of what happens at the very end of the episode. Uh, so that I wasn't crazy about. But you're right, all the stuff with Caitlin and Martha was was great. And I do think the show did a really good job of making her daughter's semi-disappearance really, really tense. Yeah. And yet still include the word butt-dialing at least twice. <laughs> and yet have it turn out to be basically nothing. Uh, so th- that that aspect of it was 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 quite cool. Well, and I like that they just mentioned enough in passing about this other case that she's working where a witness has been killed or, you know, there's threatening uh, elements to it, that there is a, a substantial and real threat. There's a real reason for her to be worried when she can't find her daughter. But I liked that it didn't have to be the A plot. It didn't have to be something that we've heard of before. Like It wasn't connected to Colin Sweeney or these other things that we've we've spent a lot of time with. And so I, I thought that that was well played. And yet another example of the good wife doing these things well, taking plots other shows do do poorly and executing them much better. That being said, I did like that she dropped a a Colin Sweeney reference. Yeah. (laughs) When she was like weirdly concerned and that it's never brought up again. And I also like that moment when um, when Chris Noth tells her, oh, no, this has nothing to do with Donald. What's his name? But he looks terrified. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it'll be fine. Listen to my voice. Don't look at my face. Yeah, that that was a, a nice little moment. It's always good to have Noth around, too, which he isn't always. Yeah. Well, and it's just, you know, it remains a very good, solid show. Even when it doesn't knock it out of the park, it's really good. And also, I just before we move on, because I know it's we need to move on, it it was nice to see that uh, they, they had Michael J. Fox on the, the episode, but that's not what they they promoted. They didn't promo the hell out of him. They, it, the main promos I was seeing was all about the daughter um, and so it was because so many of the reveals get 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 spoiled basically by the way that the show is is uh, the commercials are on for it. So I thought that was a nice touch and hopefully something that they will do more of in the future. Now, speaking of things that may or may not have knocked it out of the park this morning, no one can seem to agree about him. Yim, and yes. how and this very Robin centric episode, which. I think for me, the reason this episode worked is not so much because of the framing device. You know, we we have Robin narrating the episode and then, you know, her her kids not being real. Because because honestly, when when the, when the episode opened and she mentioned like she's like, oh, me and my kids. I'm like, because that's like not really the sort of thing that the show does where it just like drops an info bomb on you and just lets that sit there. Usually it's, it takes forever to get anything done. So I thought that was kind of amazing. But then the way they take away the kids at the end was a little heavy handed, I thought. That being said, I think it was just amazing to have an episode that was narrated by someone other than Josh Radner, which is this is something they should have done ages ago. I know what the show is called, How I Met Your Mother, but still, they they've needed some variety for a long time. And I think it was a great thing for them to do. And I'm just going to throw in throw in right now. It's Bob Saget who usually narrates it, though it is Ted. Uh, It's future Ted. Who's normally narrating Right, things. yeah, yeah, yeah. Darn. But I did, you know what, normally with these kinds of things, um, I can see why people have a problem with it. And while, like, for example, I liked this episode, I thought it was very effective and worked very well. Normally it would be one of those things where I could see why people wouldn't like it and, and, and be fine with that. But for me, I feel like anybody who has too big of a problem with the framing device just doesn't get it. Um, and And they're just wrong. So, Ooh, uh, snap. yeah, basically I, I have strong feelings about this because I know women who have struggled with, uh, finding out that they are infertile 
And so the framing device that we get here is absolutely true to life. And it's true to moments that these women have experienced in their own personal life of imagining themselves with children and then getting that taken away. So I feel like anybody who's too hung up on this just doesn't get it. At least doesn't understand how true it is to the character. Ooh, Sepinwall, you've been called out. Pretty um, much. The, the, <laughs> the, the comedy aspects of the episode, I didn't think were all that great in comparison to the Robin stuff, which is not really that big a deal because it was so, that stuff was so minor anyway. Uh, mostly I just, I, I really like it whenever Kobe Smulders gets a chance to really be showcased and really uh, stretch out. And I also liked that the sort of happy moment at the end of the episode wasn't wasn't too much mm-hmm. it was you know it was just enough for you know radner to be there with the light show and sort of cheer her up momentarily but then you know she's still sad as hell and they let that happen and that was a nice touch well and speaking of kobe smolders i mean she's great throughout the episode the, the one of the first and strongest things that i enjoyed about the episode was her her punches to barney i was like Girl can throw a punch, which is, of mm-hmm. course, a nice uh, omen of things to come with the Avengers next year. Uh, but, I, yeah, I, I also enjoyed, the, I mean, the thing with Marshall could, you know, I could see that getting old pretty quickly. But I still, I think he sold it. I think Jason Siegel sold it. And uh, it just is, uh, I was waiting for him to be in, be enamored of Mr. E and mystery. Didn't. I was waiting for that pun to come up, but uh, other than that, I, I feel like his his arc was pretty great. And I'm curious what you think about about Barney. I feel like this this revelation that Robin not only can't have kids but never will have kids, uh, or never does have kids, is the first question mark that I've seen as to Ro- Barney and Robin getting together because it seems pretty clear to me that Barney does want kids, um, and so. While I still think they're going to end up together, I think that I still think they're the ones getting married at the end of the season. For me, it was the first thing the show has done to make me question that. Yeah, or maybe they get married and then divorced. Who knows? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I I try not to think too much about like the show's long game, really, but because um, it it just seems like you know with with how relatively popular the, sh- the show is, which it still is, right? Like, it's, yeah, it's still a pretty popular show. It. You know, it seems like they're they're really doing everything they they can to stretch it out into infinity and beyond. Um, so you know, I, I don't want to wait for revelations like that. But I, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. It it is an interesting uh, sort of uh, sort of misdirect, or maybe not. Um, it's also possible they just you know get married and don't have kids, and he's just yeah. fine with that. Which yeah. we'll see. I mean, and I I, I also liked that you know the 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 show makes clear that you know just just because she doesn't have kids doesn't mean she has a horrible life which they have <laughs> to do but I think it was done in a relatively subtle way yeah I like the pole vaulting thing <laughs> I I was uh I thought it was funny and worked and uh, yeah I kept waiting for one of Lily or Ted to figure it out or maybe Barney um, but I was actually glad that they didn't at least they mm-hmm. didn't seem to so that was fun it was a it, you know I thought it was so much better at least for me than last week that I was I think pretty much anything that was at least consistently funny would have pleased me as a fall finale so yeah fair enough so we're gonna go ahead and take a break now listen to some music and we'll come back and talk about this week's episode of Homeland which is back in the spotlight so we'll be right back after this Thank mm-hmm. you. 
My Funny Valentine by the Miles Davis. I think it's the quartet, but it might be the quintet. Uh, don't quote me on that. And it was featured in this week's episode of Homeland, Representative Brody. Uh, so last week we didn't have Homeland in the spotlight. It wasn't quite up to par for us. What did you think of this week's? I thought it was smart how they sort of pretended like last week didn't happen. I mean, they didn't actually pretend it didn't happen, but there was no reference made to the revelations from last week, which we were less than thrilled with. It's almost as if they knew it was, you know, not the greatest uh, turn for them to, to take. They, they probably don't. But uh, it was still nice to see Homeland back on form this week. And I think what really stood out for me this week is how big of a badass is Mandy Patinkin? <laughs> On this show, especially. He is just kicking ass left and right. I love this guy. Especially the fact that he's... We haven't had a good sad badass in a while. And, you know, he's he's uh, he's got some real stuff in his life. And, and it's not being dramatized in a, in a ridiculous way. But at the same time, he's doing his job and he's, and he's doing it well. I mean, I guess most people are going to want to talk about sort of the explosive climax of the episode. But that's the stuff that stand, stands out for me. And that montage uh, set to... Basically, him and Carrie's blues uh, set to Miles Davis, I thought was spectacular television. I thought it was a nicer uh, thing to find out about Carrie, that she's a fan of jazz. I think it makes sense for her, and I, I liked that they, you know, that they brought that in. I, not only a fan of jazz, but a fan of Miles Davis. Um, I, I, I'm a musician, and I have fond memories of my history of jazz class in, in undergrad, so I think that's very accurate to her her character as well as telling so that was a nice thing and it's you know just on a you know selfish level it's nice to have some music to use from this show for the podcast so yeah it was it was another it was a good episode and it was it's back on form and you're absolutely right Saul's a badass uh though I'm curious what you think about if you think that you'll will you be particularly frustrated if it turns out that he's the mole yes (laughs) yes I will I would be hugely frustrated if that happened and i feel like they're gonna tease that but then not go there because they can't just keep having all these characters be moles and and double agents because how how are they gonna be able to keep them on the show and keep the show going i i I just can't see any reason for them to go that way besides the fact that it doesn't make any sense yeah do i mean i'm trying to think i feel like it's going to to be somebody you don't know or the boss I think those are the only things that make any sense. I don't think it will work if it's Saul, though I agree that they're going to tease that as long as they can. Yeah, no, I, I agree that it either has to be someone we don't know or the or the boss, which I would be fine with, I guess. I mean, I'd be I'd be better with that than than with if it were Saul. Uh, I mean, I don't really see any good options for who that character would be right now. But I mean, the show's done crazier stuff before, so so we'll see. Um, just lots of little moments I like this week, especially Carrie getting, you know, getting really excited about Brody coming over and getting, getting made up and pouring some wine, putting on her jazz and then finding out he really just wants to bury the whole thing under the rug was, you know, like just a a nice sort of quietly devastating little sequence, the sort of thing they do really well. Well, and just to have her, I was so glad to see her throw the wine out when he left, not do the stereotypical thing in this moment on other shows where she starts drinking all the wine herself or like pour Brody's glass into her glass and then just down it or whatever. I thought that that was, you know, a nice touch and different and it made sense. And as for the the little moments, I really enjoyed what we got between Brody and Mike as well. And 
I think part of that, what I enjoyed about it is that now that we have, I guess, our information about, about Brody, that he is in fact planning something to, to work with uh, Abu Nazir, I don't actually believe really anything he says other than, at least as regards Jessica, I don't think he forgives him. I don't think he's fine with it as, as far as it goes. Um, or at least that's what I was picking up from Damian Lewis. I do think he's was telling the truth about how his feelings about the kids, but I don't know. What did you think? I really, I mean, I, I thought it was nice to see Mike again in a, in a natural way. I like that he was gone for a bit and that made sense. And I like that he's back again and that makes sense too. Um, that's nothing contrived about that. I really liked their, their scene together. I thought I, I, I'm not sure how sincere he was being, but it is, but the whole scene just, just worked. And I, again, I mean, the, the acting is of such a high caliber on this show. And I especially liked uh, earlier in the episode when Marina Baccarin is just very upfront about the facts of their life. She's like, look, look <laughs> th this is going to happen. And we, you know, you and I both know what happened. Let's be, let's be adults about this. That was a, a really great little moment. Um, and, you know, since we haven't talked about it yet, the whole climax of the episode I thought was really well handled, uh, both in terms of the outcome and just the, and keeping the tension high throughout the, uh, throughout the scene, you know, the, the, the way the fake Walker uh, sort of was blocked and uh, you know, so, so, sort of always constantly a little bit obscured, so you're not sure if it's him. You think it's him, but maybe that was a, a really tricky thing to pull off visually, and I think they did it really well. Well, and even in that sequence, I just it was an excellent sequence, and, and it also is setting up, of course, for the final two episodes. Um, what what's going to happen with Carrie being forced off of her meds because she's not going to be able to 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 take them at the hospital. Uh, on, you know, they she, they would know she was taking them, so she's gonna, as one assumes, start spinning out of control. But this didn't just feel like a way to move her to be in that position. It it made sense and it worked well within the episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I hadn't even thought of that angle, but it's uh, it's true. I mean, we don't really have another nice thing is we don't really know the exact. You know, we we don't really know what she's like uh, precisely what she's taking, how much, or, or precisely what she's like off the meds. I mean, we've seen her off of it for a weekend or a couple of days. We don't know how how bad she can get, really. We don't necessarily know if we've seen the worst of Carrie. Uh, and we know that even when she's on the meds, she can be pretty bad. Like when she, I mean, admittedly, she's doing her job, but when, but when she really goes hard on their witness this week, it is not pretty. No, though I will mention that when she was at the weekend, at that weekend cabin with Brody, she did actually have more pills because we had seen her sneak some more when she went over to visit the kids. Oh yes, that's that's right. So we yes. actually have not seen her off her meds yet, but we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I, I, you know, I really liked that interrogation scene. I thought it worked very well, and I loved that they they brought up this. Oh, he's gay, and so that'll be our thing that we can use against him thing. Uh, at linchpin or whatever to their to their plan. I loved that they brought that up, and then he didn't care. I thought that was great. You know, it's like my wives already know. It's you know, you can't use this against me. And for a, a something that could have felt very not not homophobic, but just very exploitative uh, of of homophobia, and very they were very happy to use that to their gain. It was nice to see that turned around. I, I got the sense he was bluffing. But, hmm. you know, maybe that was just me. Yeah, I didn't, but uh, maybe. Just, just, just to me, I don't know why a guy who is 
who you know his family is comfortable with it and they're fine would have to sneak off like that but i mean who knows i the only part of that sequence that didn't work was i feel like homeland has like one ham-fisted line of dialogue per episode on on its good weeks and this week it was his his line about uh i I don't know if I want to get into specifics on a re- relatively family-friendly podcast, but it involved the words "gobble gobble." <laughs> it was a, it was a little it was a little much. Oh, I thought it was hilarious. L- I like that. S- s- slightly decadent for this show. Uh, but other other than that, I thought the writing was uh, that was another thing was the writing was back on point this week. Uh, you know, the, so many so much bad exposition last week and just things that didn't sound right, and they were really back on point this week with that, and uh, that made me very happy. I also noticed that the the climax of the episode really reminded me, and this show is constantly doing this, really reminded me of uh, a, a character death near the end of Rubicon, which I wasn't expecting and was done in a fairly limp way. I think, again, this was sort of... The, I, I really get the sense of Homeland as Rubicon done correctly most of the time, although I do think Rubicon did some things very well uh, when it wasn't screwing up. And uh, so, you know, once once again, uh, the influence of Henry Brommel and his show sort of like rubbing off in an interesting way. Yeah, it's uh, I didn't get that far into Rubicon, but I have seen from the earlier episodes that I did watch. I absolutely see the parallels and uh, maybe it'll be something that after the finishing the first season of this or maybe down the line after Homeland has, Homeland has finished its run it'll be interesting to go back and rewatch some of Rubicon and kind of see the ideas gestating and uh, that, that they would finally use to, with more effectiveness on Homeland. So mm-hmm. can't wait to see what happens. I'm enjoying I think there's a lot of question marks still left, but I'm enjoying the answers that we're getting. I really get the sense that this is not going to be a, the killing situation as far as the, the ending. So we'll see what happens, but I'm really liking it. Yep, for sure. Uh, let's just hope they don't screw it up. Yeah. Now, uh, let's see. A few show notes, of course. Our intro and outro music is Sweet Petite by The Bicycles. And uh, you can email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. We're going to have a post up about this at uh, with, with this podcast up at sound.site.org. So you can leave comments there. Or, of course, we're on Twitter. I'm at the Televerse. You are? I'm at Sucker Howell, H-O-W-E-L-L. So if you want, you know, send us, drop us a line and you can always, of course, I, 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 this week was another painful one for us Chicago Bears fans. I know Bruce and I and some of the other, some of our other Twitter people were, were lamenting that experience. So we're also always up to, to talk some of the, the week's TV on Twitter. Um, and then it, it would be great if, if someone wants to dr- drop over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. That would be lovely. Um, that rem- that and hate mail are our two goals. So I think let's focus on the first one and not the second one. Um, and yeah, I think... I wish your sports team luck in their game of sports, <laughs> whatever is happening there. Yeah, mostly it's going to come down to the Christmas Day game between the Bears and the Packers, for me at least, so... Man, our quarterback's out. Anyways, sorry, let's talk for for another time. Uh, But speaking of Christmas, leave us, you know, as I mentioned earlier, leave us any comments about uh, suggestions for me of Christmas movies I should check out, particularly obscure ones. And uh, I think it's time to get going to our DVD shelf. Uh, Simon, what do you think? Some uh, Xena talk? Oh, this was great. This was such fun. So uh, we'll be right back after this with Ro Karen or Karen from Starbase 66 talking a little Xena. 
Televerse. This is Kate Kulzik with Simon Howell, as ever, and this week we are talking Xena, and who better to join us than Karen from Starbase 66. Thanks for coming on the show, Karen. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very much excited about this. I get to actually talk about Xena Warrior Princess and more than just passing, which is usually all they let me say on the Starbase. <laughs> <laughs> and in life? Oh, just on the... Well, yeah, in life too. I don't get to talk about Xena. <laughs> you know. Well, anyone who listens to Starbase 66 knows that you love this series. But for our listeners who are less familiar with it, what is it about the show that, that you love so much? I think one of the, the primary reasons I love it so much is it has so many different layers. Um, it's, it's an odd one for me to like, actually, because I'm not really a big fan of the fantasy uh, branch of the genre fiction realm. But Xena just, the first thing that, that appealed to me is that Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert were the ones who were involved in, in creating it. And I'm a huge horror movie fan. And anyone who knows horror knows that Sam Raimi is one of the gods of the horror genre. Um, 
the Evil Dead series, uh, Drag Me to Hell, which is his most recent horror movie, he just he has this ability to combine humor and the most outrageous violence that you can possibly imagine, and and somehow make it palatable, and make it absolutely captivating and absolutely entertaining. And so when I heard that that he and Tappert, who had been friends for years, were behind Xena Warrior Princess, I thought, oh, this is definitely a show I'm going to have to check out. And I'm so glad that I got sucked into that universe because it's it's funny, which is what you would expect from a, a Sam Raimi product, and it's poignant, and it's got all these beautiful layers of social commentary, and I'm I'm a huge nerd when it comes to analyzing things and so there's there's just so much to analyze in the Xena universe and from a, a, a fun standpoint how do you not enjoy Lucy Lawless in leather <laughs> <laughs> well so that's interesting so you you came to the series through its creators and not for example through um, Xena's appearances on Hercules then I actually have never seen more than the the three-story arc that Xena first appeared on huh, from okay. Hercules. I, I don't know what it was about, about Hercules, the legendary adventures or legendary <laughs> journey, whatever it was called. I don't remember. I don't know. <laughs> Kevin Sorbo just seemed so clean cut and boy scoutish. And I don't know. I, I don't like my heroes to be so squeaky clean. I like them to be damaged in some way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but I, I like there to be, be cracks in the surface. And Xena is definitely, she's, she is the good guy, you know, but, but there's so much damage behind that character and there's such darkness. I mean, when you first meet her, you, you, you know, you know, you're in for, for something frightening when you see her own mother pull a sword on her. And tell her that she's no longer her daughter and just kicks her out of her village. You know that there's some serious stuff going on with this character and it's it's gonna be an interesting ride from that point. So yeah, I didn't I didn't come to it from, from the Hercules standpoint. And I actually kinda of got irritated when they would bring Hercules up <laughs> on Xena. Like, I don't wanna hear about him. <laughs> Oh, that, that's that's a lot of fun for me. I mean, I was I was a kid when these were on like middle school or something like that, uh, and so I would sit on like the weekends or whatever and watch Hercules and Xena with my sister. And I mean, it was just and looking back on it now, I was so glad when you when you were able to come on. I wanted to talk Xena because this was the, my first time uh, re-experiencing this series uh, since. Well, I guess since it was on the air. So it's been several years for me. And it was so fun to to watch it with that perspective now because I still really enjoyed it. But now I'm seeing all of the extra layers of camp. And like like I was telling Simon earlier, it's really astonishing how much bamboo there is in ancient Greece (laughs) in all of the huts. And how all the warlords are Maori. um, Yes. But it was... when this show was on, it was completely in my wheelhouse because I always loved the the Greek myths and and that that element of the history and fantasy. And I also, as I've mentioned, I feel like a million times in the show at this point, uh, like D and D and played Dungeons and Dragons from the time I was a kid. So it was so fun for me to see Gabrielle, which was the first 
depiction I had ever seen of a bard, like an accurate depiction of what a bard was supposed to be mm-hmm. in the game. And so at least how she started out the series before her, her uh, costume got increasingly skimpy and she became increasingly <laughs> badass. Uh, the, the heart of the character um, was this fun storyteller. And so I, I started out watching Hercules and then started watch them both. But I think Xena quickly be, it became obvious was the better of the two. And for a show that is so very campy and fun, it's basically a live action cartoon as far as I'm concerned um, yeah. a lot of the time. I think it's telling that while there have been plenty of other shows that have tried to capture the same magic uh, as as Xena does to capture the right balance, very few of them have. I mean, there's I think of like Beastmaster or was it on Comedy Central they had Crab Mandoon or whatever it was, but nothing <laughs> is like that. Yeah, nothing's really caught on quite like Xena has or lasted as as well in public consciousness. Um, now, Simon, you had never seen any Xena. Well, that's not exactly true. I mean, I saw some Xena. I mean, it, it premiered in 1995. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so I would have been nine years old at the time. Oh, and you're both breaking my heart. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I figured that was coming. But... Yeah, I'm not even going to say how old I was when Xena came out. <laughs> so um, I probably saw some Xena. I mean, I definitely recall seeing some Xena when I was around, you know, between the ages of 10 and 12. And when you're 10 and 12, when you're a 10 and 12 year old boy, Xena appears different to you than when you're watching it as an adult <laughs> or as some might say, as a, a human being and not a 12 year old boy. And uh, rewatching it was really interesting, at, you know, especially on like an analytical level, because um, on one hand, it's this, you know, uh, like in one dimension, it's this really it's this very, you know, shoestring budget fantasy show where they're doing like super ambitious stuff on a plot level and trying to do it with no, with, I wouldn't say no money, but very little money. Mm-hmm. And so like on a, on a production level, I find it uh, fascinating in some like, like, you know, they're, they're incorporating gods and many clans and this, this vast environment. And on the other hand, if you look carefully, you can see when, for instance, there's a scene when um, in a particular episode where Xena is dragging, Gabrielle along on a horse and it's very obvious that that is not Gabrielle that's being drugged <laughs> along if you're paying any attention and and lots of little things like that um on the other hand I had to laugh at some sort of thematic and societal stuff when I was watching it like for instance obviously and I'm sure we were about we were going to get into this anyway and so let's start um you know there's this there's the whole sexuality angle to the show that's very original for the time as far as i know in the sense that you know of, of you know Zena and gabrielle and their relationship and other relationships as well that i saw i mean that that, that are clearly you know lesbianic in nature and you know that's not necessarily something that's probed and that's very forward thinking on the other hand the depiction of some of the of some of the other characters you know sometimes like for instance in the two-parter the the debt um you know, Xena travels to the land of Chin, yeah. and the whole episode just reeks of Orientalism, mm-hmm. and it's you know not necessarily all that for it. Anyway, so it, I find it interesting the way that the show is both sort of regressive and progressive at the same time, and I'm sure we're going to come up with other examples of that as well. 
Well, it's interesting first to, to touch upon what you were just saying about the stereotypical depiction of, of Asian culture. It's, it's interesting that you would say that because that was actually a huge influence in the development of this particular character. Um, Rob Tappert was a huge fan of Hong Kong cinema, and one of his favorites was this actress. I, I'm not even going to attempt to say her actual name, um, but she took on an Americanized version, um, Brigitte Lin, and she was in, in movies like um, The Bride with White Hair, and this was apparently one of Tappert's favorite movies. And if you look at the original three-episode story arc that Xena first appears in on Hercules, it's pretty much an American retelling of The Bride with White Hair, which is all about this warrior witch who has committed these atrocious deeds against her, her kinsmen and her people. And, you know, she, she tries to redeem herself. And in her attempts to redeem herself, she is nearly beaten to death by her own troops. And um, the original three-story arc was supposed to end with Xena dying. Um, she wasn't supposed to go on to a new show. In fact, Tappert and Raimi were, were thinking about doing a, a show based on Jason and the Argonauts before they this decided to, to go. <laughs> of the, course the they were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, there's, there's definitely a lot of, of Asian influence. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that they were trying to be derogatory in, in their Asian representations. I think oh, maybe they I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that at all. I just think that it's they're, a little they're over relying, the top. Yeah, they're 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 relying on you know on, on on a lot of old tropes. I just think that it's an, an, an interesting contrast to the other stuff in the show that's sort of more contemporary. Mm-hmm. And that that I think is is one of the things that I I believe gives a lot of people pause when it comes to Xena's because it's it's such a, a pastiche of of cultural references and and influences and you know is it greek mythology or roman or asian or is it trying to be modern it it, it i know it throws off some people i know that that's one of rick's major complaints um rick from from our podcast one of his major complaints is that he can't stand watching something that's supposed to be a period piece but they're talking <laughs> in in modern language and and i was like oh you're never gonna watch xena are you <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i i kind of enjoy that aspect of it but what you were saying also as as far as the sexuality of xena um, they actually went out of their way, especially in the very first season, to sort of establish both the character of Xena and Gabrielle as, as staunchly heterosexual. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> Zeta was, was laying a lot of guys <laughs> in, that, in that first season. Although uh, there's including... still a reference in that pilot episode, and Gabrielle makes a reference to... Uh, to essentially banging Xena, except she, she she goes out of her way to point out that's not what she meant. But by doing that, she she still you know makes yeah. It implicit. Yeah, I mean, I think that they they knew from the very beginning that this was going to be a strong role model, not just for women, but but for women who feel ostracized, who feel put on the sidelines. I mean, there's, there's this great line from the very first episode that Gabrielle says when she's, when she's trying to convince Xena to let her come along with her. And she says, I'm not the little girl my parents wanted me to be. 
And I, I remember hearing that line and it resonating so loudly with me and thinking, you know, this, this is, this is going to be interesting to see what they do with, with these two characters and with their relationship and how it develops. And I think that their attempts to, to make sure that people knew right from the start that these two characters are straight. I think they were sort of like doing a preemptive strike of let's do this now before people start talking so that when they do start to talk, we can play innocent, which is really what a lot of them did. Really? People think that they're gay? Really? I never thought about that. Or, you know, mean, meanwhile, they've got writers doing shows like um, there's an episode called A Day in the Life. And there's a line in that episode where someone's asking Gabrielle if if she thinks that Zena is ever going to settle down with a, a man and, and get married. And and Gabrielle's response is, no, she still likes what I do. And then she goes, <laughs> I mean, what she does. <laughs> and it's like, you guys know exactly what you're doing. Um, <laughs> my, my, fa my favorite sort of tossed off little joke like that is also in the, the, the two-parter, um, the debt wherein um, she's hanging out with the, um, the, the, the Chin uh, princess and her apparent boyfriend. I don't know what to call him exactly. And, mm. uh, and there's a reference to not eating meat that is, that is quite, <laughs> quite decisively placed. Uh -huh. Well, and what, yeah. what I liked about that, uh, about the way that they handled it, and I, of course this is from my perspective watching it as a kid and only much later, like around about the time that Xena and, and Gabrielle are uh, hot tubbing nude together, I started uh -huh. to key into maybe, <laughs> you know, just because I was just watching uh, an action movie with a, with a chick kicking ass all the time. And that's pretty much all I was seeing. Um, but, I, you know, that's from that perspective of not looking for a role model or looking for a, a specific representation. I like that it in doing in just sort of backing away from the controversy and very um, actively, air quotes, making it uh, ambiguous, even though, I mean, I think we can all see what's going on here when you actually watch it. <laughs> it allows the show to be what the viewer wants it to be. So mm -hmm. it, it allows people to see what they want in the characters. And so if there are people who, for whatever reason that would stop them from watching this show knowing that that Zena and Gabrielle are together it do, they don't they can choose to not see it um and for people who are more open minded they can see what's there as well and i think it's a beautiful relationship that it's well developed over over the course of this of the series and i think you actually kind of have to be trying pretty hard to not see it yeah i was going i was about yeah. to say they have to choose pretty forcefully <laughs> but <laughs> you also have to remember that this was on this is, you know, on in the late 90s, and it, it went off the air in 2001. When this was on the air, I mean, that was, remind, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was before Willow was uh, came out on, on Buffy. That was, this was, it has to be the most prominent lesbian character at the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, even though they never really said that, that the relationship between Zine and Gabrielle was was less than platonic. You're right. I mean, it, it was it was very obvious that you had to be trying really hard to not see it that way. But it, you know, like you were saying, it was it was the mid to late '90s when this show came out, and you know, there there really weren't that many prominent representations of of gay characters. Um, 
And so just even to have them there, even though it was never explicitly stated, just to have them as that representation was incredibly encouraging and comforting to a lot of people who who felt marginalized and and silenced still um you know and and Zena has been i think unfortunately that also added as a stigma to the show that people didn't want to admit that they watched Zena because you know especially straight women i i've i've heard straight women say that they were embarrassed to say that they watched and enjoyed Xena Warrior Princess because they were afraid that someone would assume that they were gay. And I think that that's an unfortunate backfiring of what they were trying to do with the characters. That it it shouldn't be a stigma. That you should just go, no, not really. I just think chicks that kick ass are kind of cool. <laughs> that's interesting because I've, I've never run across that. But then again, I would assume it traces back to when I was watching, this, my age when I was watching this show. I was... You know, it was just so fun to see a strong, independent woman on television because there weren't even very many of those. I think Xena played a big role. And, you know, for example, I mentioned Buffy earlier because <laughs> it is my favorite show. Um, but <laughs> Xena was a strong influence on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and on other strong female characters who came after her. And and even Gabrielle, who's the more passive of the two, is always a strong character in her own right. She sticks to her beliefs. D- even particularly more when she's in conflict with Xena or, or other main characters about what is right. And so to have these, there's an, absolutely no question of either one of their importance, intelligence, integrity throughout the series. And I think that's great. Can I mention something sp- specific while I, mm-hmm. while I have you both here? Um, l- like Buffy, since you just mentioned it, um, and I'm not sure if there was more than one, but they definitely did at least one all musical episode. There's and I two. have to say there's mm-hmm. two. The um mm-hmm. well I saw the bittersweet and I have to say that once the music kicks in, uh, when they first come into the land of Elusia, mm-hmm. um those few those first few minutes of the musical episode in Elusia are some of the weirdest goddamn television I've <laughs> ever seen. <laughs> I I I love I love the trippy nature of uh, the bittersweet. Um, it is one of my favorite episodes because it is it's so bizarre. I mean, if you're looking for strange television, then look no further than Xena Warrior Princess because it delivered some of the weirdest scenes from television history, including that beginning. Um, well, and but, it's also yeah. just so much fun. And there's I, I love the the bittersweet too. Of course, I like musicals. Anyways, so it was always going to end. Lucy Lawless is an excellent singer, so that definitely helps. Yes, but uh, even I mean, if you, I haven't seen Liar Liar, which is the the late the second musical episode. Unfortunately, I didn't get to that one. But even not just the musical, there's I remember I can't remember the name of the episode, but there's this I think the Xena Scrolls or something like that in in the second season where it's all of the characters reincarnated in the '40s at an archaeological dig, and you find out at the very end that actually Lucy Lawless is like Joxer reincarnated and Renee O'Connor's like Xena. Re- like, so there's this whole body swap thing. They weren't afraid to go goofy and just to have fun. And yeah, and I mean, that's they, something they I appreciate. Did. Yeah. They, they had some weird concepts. I mean, the, the one that you're just referring to the Xena scrolls. Yeah. The, it was like 1940s Macedonia and it was an Indiana Jones spoof with um, Janice Covington and um, Medina Pappas, I think. 
Um, and so, yeah, Gabrielle's all of a sudden the, the archaeologist and the, the brave one and the hunter, and and Zena is now the ditzy assistant. Um, they also had a couple of episodes where they dealt with reincarnation in a more modern setting, where it was they were in like the 1990s and, and going to psychiatrists to try <laughs> to figure out what what was going on with them. Um, there was also an episode where fans of Xena um, <laughs> found her DNA and reincarnated her in modern times using um, Alti's help. Alti was, was one of the villains played by Claire Stansfield who um, some people might know as the Jersey Devil from uh, the X-Files. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, they did some really bizarre things with Xena, but it was, it was always fun. And for a show that's as silly and campy as it was, it had some incredibly moving moments. And usually those moments came between Xena and Gabrielle, where you you saw strains on their relationship because of how Xena was, was struggling to stay on this path of redemption that she had set for herself. Uh, whereas, you know, the struggle for, for Gabrielle, it's interesting that you say that she was one of the more passive characters. And um, I always saw that even though the show was about Xena, I always thought that it was really about Gabrielle's journey and about how Gabrielle moved from being that that young girl that Xena found into this holistically complex woman that we saw her as in that final episode. Mm -hmm. And her journey was so captivating and beautiful. And, you know, by the end, she was so strong. And you, you didn't expect her to be where she ended up but it made perfect sense that she was where she was. I absolutely agree. And I think you can see that very much in the last shot of of the, the finale, just the way that it pulls off of... Uh, shall we spoiler alert? I don't feel like you should need to. The show ended 10 years ago, but when it pulls away from her alone on the ship after Xena has died and you're seeing her, she's the new Xena as, you know, as far as these things go. Um, all of Zena's knowledge has been passed to Gabrielle, who will now go forward and continue her the, her journey. Um, and so I think that's an excellent point. Um, we are running uh, late on time, so I, before we, we wrap up, there are a few things that I, I feel like we got to touch on, uh, including some of the fantastic guest cast. Uh, oh, we yeah. Ted Raimi and Bruce Campbell. Oh, yeah. How do you, how do you not have Bruce Campbell in a Sam Raimi, Rob Tappert production? <laughs> I mean, it's it's just wrong to not have him there. And of course, you know, Raimi's brother. As I was watching Xena, I started to think, well, you know, this is fun and all, but is not is this all just secretly a way for Sam Raimi to keep Ted Raimi employed? <laughs> Jocks are the mighty, be. man. Good times. Jocks are the mighty. <laughs> well, and every time Atollicus popped up on either Hercules or Xena, I was a happy Kate. <laughs> and this is, of course, but I mean, I am a horror movie uh, wuss, so I've seen uh, Army of Darkness, but I'm not willing to put myself through Evil Dead 1 or 2. And so okay. when you see, at one point, uh, Bruce Campbell do his back-and-forth dance thingy from <laughs> Evil Dead, I, of course, had no idea that that's what he was doing. And I'm just, <laughs> just like, oh, that Autolycus, he's so silly. Um, <laughs> 
but there there are lots of great and of course many people would go on to to do other things like carl urban is as shows up in a few different times and some of the other guest cast um who do you guys have particular favorites uh well definitely carl urban i adore him i think he's spectacular um Gina Torres popped up mm -hmm. as Cleopatra on Xena, and of course she she later went on to be famous as Zoe Washburn on on Firefly. Um, Melinda Clark, uh, mm -hmm. who pops up on one of my other favorite shows, CSI, as Lady Heather. Um, she was actually considered as as one of the actresses they wanted to play Xena, which would have been interesting. Um, their first choice was actually Roma Downey, which. Well, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. I can't process that. But Melinda <laughs> Clark, uh, definitely one of my favorites. And I already mentioned Claire Stansfield. Uh, her performance as Alti was just absolutely amazing. My my second favorite baddie from the Xena universe was Alti. Um, my first, of course, being Hudson-like as Callisto. Yeah, Callisto's pretty good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she, she's got the evil laugh down. I got to give her credit. Like, I started groaning when the evil laugh came in there, but I was like, you know what? Pulling it off. She's yeah, she making that, that work. Cackle. Yeah. yeah she, she just owned that character completely. And Kalisto is one of my all-time favorite villains of any show, of, of any, sort, any story, actually. I think that, again, damaged and complex, and you can't completely hate her. And you can't completely side with her. I mean, you understand where she came from and, and why she is the way she is. But then you reach a point where you're like, okay, you're just completely unhinged. And there's no stopping you. I mean, when you hear her, that, that battle cry she has, and it's just this scream of agony ripped from her soul. And you're just sitting there thinking, oh man, you're so frightening. Well, and then of course there's Kevin Smith of a different Kevin Smith as Aries, who I remember yes. being one of my favorites on the show. Though I gotta say, his first appearance, his goatee, is I was reminded <laughs> of the the felt goatees from the alternate evil uh, community universe. <laughs> um, but I don't know, thing, touches like that sort of just make me love the show all the more because you can being able to see the you know the the wires in the stunts or you know etc. That that sort of feel I think just makes it all all the more fun. Um, does, are there any final uh, notes you guys would like to make sure we mention? Um, just that it's it's a show that I think is a little underrated. Um, I think that it's something that people pass by because there were so many other shows that, that received more attention. You know, Buffy was on at the same time. Um, and even though people like Joss Whedon acknowledged that Xeno made it possible for Buffy to come to the television and people like Quentin Tarantino acknowledged that Xena made it possible for the bride to make it to the big screen in, in Kill Bill. I think that people kind of overlook it as that, that silly fantasy show that Sam Raimi did for a while. And that's, that's kind of what it is, but it's, it's also kind of unfair because there, there are so many layers to the show. I mean, it's fun and it's provocative and it's got social commentary and it's got Lucy Lawless and leather and the pig <laughs> side of me is just really, really enamored of that thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, Simon, any final thoughts? Uh, I, I think if I'm ever cursed with children, um, I think that, uh, um, <laughs> That's I delightful. Would, I would I would love to make them watch Xena, uh, starting around the age that I first saw it air, because I, I I feel like it's a good, 
launch pad for imagination and for thinking about uh, the social commentary that you mentioned, Karen. Um, watching it now as an adult, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I think marathoning it in the way that I did was probably a mistake. I, I think if you were watching it on a weekly basis, I think that's sort of ideal. I don't know mm-hmm. if sitting down watching eight hours of it is necessarily um, recommended. But uh, I, I no, do that think sounds like a good day to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think it has an interesting place in TV and pop culture history for sure. Um, the two things we haven't touched on that I I do want to make sure to add is first of all I really like the the music and I really like the theme song and I kind of wish the guy would shut up and stop talking over it um, <laughs> in the intro though it is just the that is so perfect for the tone of the show that I wouldn't change it uh, but I do actually like a lot of the scoring and also it's just the scenery is so gorgeous it's oh it's yeah New Zealand and. Man, I want to travel there someday, but oh yeah, I mean, just, just, and of course, this was the first that most Americans were seeing of New Zealand, um, you know, long before Lord of the Rings. So, it's just beautiful scenery to look at as well. Hey, let's Absolutely. use some of that thick sound on site fund. And, uh, and <laughs> there's probably a film fest in Wellington, right? There's got to exactly. be. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I get yeah. Grant. There has to be. Yeah, it sounds sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm I'm very glad that you mentioned the, the scenery because it is gorgeous and, and definitely shot New Zealand up on my list of places I absolutely want to go visit. And as far as the music, uh, Joseph Loduca was the the musician behind all of the, the the soundtrack for Xena, and he did a fantastic job. I mean that that combination of of Celtic and Arabic and Greek and it, just beautiful music, absolutely. So, Karen, of course, you are on Starbase 66, uh, which is part of the Simply Syndicated family of podcasts. But where else can our listeners find you? Well, if if you're that desperate to find me, um, you can find <laughs> me on a couple of episodes of, of Nerd Hurdles, including one where I'm there with, with my beloved, who I talk about quite frequently on Starbase 66. Um, she <laughs> makes it a an appearance that... that people are still talking about i don't know whether that's good or bad and there's um, some xena talk there too as i recall yeah there <laughs> oh we touch on a lot of things but we we do touch on xena a couple of times <laughs> um uh, i'm on an episode of here goes nothing i can be found on the simply syndicated forums i'm i'm the blogging mind on starbase66.com twitter uh, I, I have a Twitter feed. I am Ro Karen on, on Twitter. Um, I, I do warn you, if you follow me on Twitter, you will be inundated with what Rick has dubbed my Twitter orgies. I disappear <laughs> for a while, and then all of a sudden I come on, and it's like <laughs> 50 gajillion messages, and then I disappear for like two days. So, so you Twitter paid yeah. for a while. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on, uh, Karen, and hopefully we'll get to speak with you in the future about another such uh, show as Xena. And uh, thank every, uh, you, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, thank you. Thank you.